Good Sunday morning to you. Uh, thank you for joining us at the Monroe Church of Christ. Uh, this is pre-recorded. Uh, we typically do Sunday morning classes live as well as a midweek class live uh, to give you the opportunity to interact and for us to, to interact with one another through that. But the next few weeks are going to be pre-recorded in both of those classes. And the reason is the final two weeks of the month, I will be gone to Wisconsin Christian Youth Camp where I'll be working and in order to have those lessons pre-recorded, uh, in order to, to fit that into the schedule, I have to pre-record some of the weeks leading up to it so that I can use that, the time where I would normally be live to record subsequent. Uh, I have to be able to set up to do maybe a few in a row. So to clear that time, I've got to do these uh, a little bit early as well and have them pre-recorded for you. So you're watching this on a Sunday morning, and we're glad you're here, glad you're watching it, and hope that you will share it and... Um, and continue to study along with us. We will, by the end of this month, be done with this study in the Gospel of John. And we're nearing the end here in this really important book that describes the essence of Christ, the deity of Christ, the divine nature of Jesus. And we're in the trial of Jesus at the end of his, his life. Last week, in chapter 18, we looked at him standing before Pilate after having been tried by the priests and the, the teachers, and now he stands before Pilate. And we're going to talk a little bit about this relationship and who Pilate was and, and what was happening in this historical context. Um, Pilate has already said to the people, I don't have any basis for uh, convicting him. He is innocent. Uh, and then he begins to offer a series of opportunities for compromise. Now let's talk about why he's doing this. One of the keys to Roman occupation and conquering of the world at that time was the ability to maintain peace. There was, there was a, a level of flexibility, but also a level of submission. So the taxes are paid on time. There's no rebellion. There's no mob. There's no insurrection. Rome is happy. Okay, That's really what they're after. So they allow local people a degree of autonomy. And the Jews in this case in Jerusalem and in these territories were allowed some autonomy with carrying out their laws, with living the life according to their law and their God. And so Pilate is the governor of this area. He is Rome's voice. He is Rome's hands and feet. He is, he is a representative of Rome in this place. And it's very likely that there had been uprisings and issues because you're meeting a really stark cultural contrast between the Jews and, the Ro and, and Rome and they are a, a very independent people. They have a long history. There's a, there's a, has crept in a degree of arrogance uh, in, their, in, in how they govern themselves. And so you're seeing this bubbling, and it's very likely that this had happened before, that there had been mobs and riots that had to be put down and suppressed. And it's very likely that Pilate is, is on the chopping block for his job because he's having difficulty with these people. So we've got to consider the historical context that Pilate's in a very difficult position. He doesn't want to be pushed around, and he wants to show them that he's not going to be pushed around, but he doesn't want to stir up trouble because that could mean trouble for him and his position and his authority. So he's trying to find a compromise. The first thing he tries is to tell them, hey, I don't see any reason that he should be guilty, and uh, you, know, you take care of him, you do it, do it. And they say, well, we can't put him to death, only you have the authority to call for uh, a capital punishment and execution and so he has to talk to Jesus again and then he comes up with this compromise hey I don't think he's guilty I can't find any reason under Roman law to charge him 
but we have this tradition, I turn over to you a prisoner. I turn over to you someone that you can do what you want with. Here is Barabbas, a thief, uh, I mean, an obvious and known criminal. And here's Jesus, who I find no guilt in. And he's hoping they'll take the bait and say, well, release Jesus. Uh, and, and no, they, and take, take him out of, their, out of Rome's hands, essentially. No, give us Barabbas. You take Jesus. You do what you want with Jesus. And so Pilate has to take him back again. That's how we begin chapter 19. He takes him, scourges him, beats him. And then uh, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And they give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. And then Jesus comes out wearing the robe, wearing the crown of thorns. And Pilate says to them, Behold, the man. Now, when he says, behold the man, now that seems like an odd statement in our syntax, but in, in their vernacular, he's saying, look, look what we've done. We've beat him. We've mocked him. We've humiliated him. We've destroyed him. This ought to be enough. We've shown that he has no authority. We've shamed him now in front of you, but I can't find any guilt, any reason to carry out an execution. Verse 6, so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. In other words, he's saying, you, you've got to do this yourself. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. The Jews answered, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he has made himself out to be the son of God. Now, this is new information for Pilate. He knows this guy's leading some kind of rebellion or, or is claiming to be a king. And when Pilate heard this, in verse 8 it says, he was even more afraid. So he's already afraid He's even more afraid. Now, some might say, well, oh, Pilate is uh, trembling at the thought that, this, that Jesus might be telling the truth. I think it's more likely he's trembling at the thought of the political ramifications. He's now realized this is not going to be a, a, a quick matter to deal with. He's not going to be able to dispose of this particular case in a timely fashion and not by uh, offering negotiation or trying to come to a compromise. He's going, his hand is being forced because this is a very serious charge under Jewish law. This is a very definite, serious consequence, and he's being further backed into a corner, and that's where this fear is coming from. So he enters again into the praetorium, verse 9, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him again, you don't speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Now, Pilate's kind of showing his bluster here a little bit, uh, showing his position, kind of lording it over Jesus to say, you need to start talking to me because I hold your fate in my hands. Now, listen to what Jesus says. And there's some, there's some debate over what he's saying here, but let's try to break down Jesus' words. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above uh, some people take that to mean uh, God, given to you from above, that God is using you to, to take part in this process that has to happen. That's very possible. It's more likely Jesus is pointing out the political predicament. He's saying, you wouldn't be in this position unless somebody had put you here. Uh, in other words, you're just middle management, Pilate. You, you have authority over me, but it's only because somebody else hired you to be the governor. 
your authority is, your position here, you're forced into this. You know, that's your authority over me because Rome told you to. And then he says, for this reason, he who delivered me to you and Caiaphas, the high priests, to you has the greater sin. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, you're here because you have to be. You're here because you have to be dealing with this. But God is working, and this is all part of the plan. And the ones who have brought me to you, they're the ones that are manipulative. They're the ones that are scheming. They're the ones that are trying to destroy me because of the threat the gospel represents. So Jesus is really pointing out this political predicament, I think, that Pilate is in. Verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Ooh, hey, that's some fighting words right there. If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Now, if there was one thing that would strike fear into the heart of a, of a bureaucrat uh, in Rome, it was to say that they were somehow not in union with Caesar, that they were not um, friendly to their emperor. And they say, everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And you see how they're manipulating this. The ones that have brought Jesus to Pilate, they're the ones that are doing the evil here. They're the ones trying to have a man killed, and they're doing it in the most cowardly way. They want him put to death, but they don't want to be the ones to do it. They don't want to be the ones responsible. That's how they can wash their hands of this thing. They bring the charge before Pilate. They let Rome do the dirty work, and they say, hey, you know, that he shouldn't have said what he said. He shouldn't have broken the law. And they get what they want, and Rome has to bear the brunt of the people's anger. Pilate, being the representative of Rome, doesn't want the leadership here to be causing him trouble because they already have been, but he doesn't want the people to be angry with him and rebel against him either. And so now he has a choice to make, and he's tried everything to release this man, and now they've played the trump card. And the trump card is he's claiming to be a king. Now, remember, the charge they came with first was he says he's the son of God. That violates our law. He should be put to death. And he says, hey, I don't see a reason to put him to death. I want to get rid of him. And they then play the trump card, which is to change their charge, to change the story, to amend the indictment and say, well, wait a minute. He's claiming to be a king. Now, certainly that is a clear act of rebellion against Caesar. And if you let him go, you're condoning this very clear treasonous act. And therefore, verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat, a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. I think these verses show something about human nature and even particularly about followers of God because we look at this and we pronounce judgment on both parties. These high priests, these teachers, they were uh, seeking to put to death the son of God. And we have a lot of criticism toward Pharisees, Sadducees, and the like. The truth is, they're not inherently bad people. They really thought they were doing the will of God. I believe that. 
I believe that they thought it was what God wanted them to do, and I believe that they were, they were scared by the prospect of the things Jesus was teaching. Their eyes were not open to the truth, and that may have been purposeful. I mean, it really may have been uh, their eyes were blinded to the truth by God, by the Spirit. Uh, there's some evidence of that as we read further into some of the other Gospels and New Testament writings. God had to see to it that this task was carried out. And in order to do that, it had to be the right time and the right situation and a confluence of events that would allow Jesus to be heard. It would allow him to be in a place and time where that was, was going to happen. And then there would be this effort to get rid of him so that his death could come about in the way that was necessary. I think that the evidence is clear in the New Testament that there's some God at work here in blinding them because we, otherwise it's hard to imagine how they could ignore and not see the authority and, and with clarity the truth. So we criticize them, but I think that they really thought they were doing the will of God, but they were wrong. And what they were doing was evil and it was selfish and self-interested. It was manipulative. And most of all, it was blasphemous because they're charging him with blasphemy. And then they change that charge to be that he's said treasonous things against, against uh, Caesar. And how do they respond when Pilate, acknowledging, by the way, their sort of quasi-autonomy to say, you want me to crucify your king? And their response is, we have no king but Caesar absolutely denouncing and denying the one true God, their, their relationship to him, and placing Caesar the king in an opportunistic and manipulative, manipulative way above Jehovah. And we can criticize that, rightly so. It's a horrible thing to do. We can criticize Pilate for being a coward. Or we could look at that and ask ourselves, how often do we do that? How often are we uh, pressured by various forces in our world to not make the right decision, but to make the expedient one? How often are we driven to deny God and God's will in our life to accomplish something that is selfish? I think we're more like the Pharisees than we realize. I think we're more like Pilate sometimes than we realize. But the pure evil the pure hatred that, that existed here and the devil at work, uh, it, it, it just shows you how much they, they, they hated Jesus and how much he scared them because it drove them to do things that violated even their own law. I mean, these are followers of the Ten Commandments, the tablets that Moses brought down. And what does it say? The very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And what was Caesar to Rome? A god. A god. Certainly had the authority of one. And here they violate the very first commandment. These keepers of the law, these perfect people, these great disseminators of God's will say we have no king but Caesar. The links they were willing to go to. So, Pilate then handed him over to be crucified. So he gives the order. He gives in. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, 
which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was, uh, it was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So in three different languages, which was interesting. Greek would have been the common language uh, of the people. It had been for some time. Latin was also uh, uh, an accepted language. And then Hebrew, which was a more local language to the Jews, but also was not in their common usage. Uh, It was something that was used in their writings, but it wasn't necessarily their common usage. They were, by this point, probably much more, uh, in terms of writing, much more common to see Aramaic, but they were rediscovering the language Hey, that's for our midweek study, probably. But it's written in these three languages. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but instead write that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. He's not playing games anymore. This is what he says. This is what I'm putting. Because I'm not going to, I'm not going to change this. And so Pilate refuses to change. He wants nothing to do with this anymore. Then the soldiers, verse 23, when they had crucified Jesus, took out his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John points this out because he's pointing out that Jesus fulfilled prophecy even in his death. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. He's also pointing out that the spirit is moving. Okay, this isn't just, hey, something was predicted and it happened. Okay, this is John pointing out this is active. The Holy Spirit is active here. Why did so many people in power ignore the clear truth and authority of Christ? Because the spirit was moving them too. Now, does that mean that God forced people and predestined people to do evil things. No, it means that God is going to use the situations we find ourselves in to do his will. And he did so, and he had the right people in the right place at the right time to make it happen. So, this is the spirit moving to fulfill these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which we understand to be John, by the way, it's how he referred to himself here, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. He's, he's giving the care of his mother over to John. Now, interesting question here, because we're dealing with some Jewish culture and Jewish law. Uh, women were not regarded in society the way we do today. Uh, certainly wasn't as progressive when it comes to gender as what we are today. And so women did not work. They did not have a vocation and earn a wage. I mean, some did, but they didn't have standing in the same way that men did. And oftentimes we see, and and it's repeated in the New Testament, to care for widows and orphans because those people were destitute and they relied on the community. And part of the early church was that sense of community and caring and loving and looking after one another. Uh, and so when a, when a woman lost her husband, she had to find a man to take care of her. Now, if he died, according to Jewish law, she went to the brother and married him because that was how 
That was how God designed people to be cared for. We don't do that today, obviously, but that was how God designed that women would be cared for should they lose their husband, then they go the next in line on the brothers, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, there's also the issue of children. If you have children, male children particularly, they can take care of you. They can look after you as a widow. Now, if you lost your husband for a shameful reason, if you were put away in divorce and there was great shame brought to you, well, then many women turned to prostitution and other means that were less than uh, highly regarded in order to survive. And Jesus is looking at his mother and someone has to take care of her, so he gives his mother to this disciple with whom he had a close relationship. We believe John. That's interesting because that would indicate that Joseph is clearly out of the picture at this point. In fact, there's evidence prior to this that Joseph was out of the picture. Now, there's other children because we see references to Jesus' brothers. And we know that later, one of his brothers, uh, we believe, is going to write an epistle that's found near the end of our New Testament. James, the brother of, of Christ. Where are they? Where is Joseph? Did he die? Did he leave? We don't know the kind of pressure that Mary was under in her life. We think of Mary as this wonderful, holy person who gave birth to the Christ, um, had a family with Joseph, uh, but she would have been shamed in her community because there were still a lot of rumors about having that child out of wedlock. There was still a great deal of pressure and shame on both her and Joseph for that relationship. They were probably marginalized and ostracized and looked at differently. And I would imagine those other children grew up hearing those whispers and rumors too. They might have heard people say, hey, and they might have said to Jesus, you know, we know who our father is, Joseph. We don't know who yours is because mom had you before that marriage. Something happened there. We don't know to what degree these brothers and this family believed Jesus at various points. And they may have come around. But at certain points, there may have been a lot of pressure, and Joseph may have just left. It's possible. The best case scenario is he died, but he's not in the picture. And the brothers aren't anywhere to be found. Why is he giving his mother off to his friend to care for her and not his brothers that grew up in his household? It seems evident that they were not around at this point. So he says to John, this is your mother now. To his mother, he says, this is your son now care for each other accordingly. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So we have the, if John is indeed speaking of himself as we believe he is, then he's giving an account there that he took care of Mary. She was one of his own from that point on. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine, think, uh, think apple cider vinegar, okay? My you know, a lot of people like to drink apple cider vinegar for health. Uh, they drink a little bit of this, some, you know, they mix it with some water and they drink it first thing in the morning. It's supposed to be really good for you. Um, you know what? If it, it, that's what they tried to give Jesus when he was being killed. So I'm going to, you know, I just don't like the way it tastes. I have no theological issue with it, but, uh, but that's my excuse. Uh, but a jar full of sour wine was standing there. We're talking vinegar here, okay? Uh, and they, they uh, put it upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. So they, they soak a sponge, they stick it up there and bring it near his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So he resigned himself to death. 
He let himself pass from this life. It is finished. It truly was. Now, the story's not finished. Our story's not finished. The story of God's people's not finished. But the thing that was to be accomplished to make this possible, his life ended. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, but there were certain Sabbaths that were considered holier than others. This is one of them. And they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Let's explain here. Uh, the Sabbath is coming. All right. Remember, this happens on a, on a Friday. Sunday is, or excuse me, Saturday is approaching. And Sunday is when we'll get to the resurrection. But, but Saturday is approaching. When the sun goes down, it's, it's Sabbath time. And they don't want to have to deal with dead bodies hanging there because they can't go take them down. They can't do work. And they don't want to have to deal with this over their high holy day. And so they asked Pilate, can we break their legs? Clearly, these people are still alive. Remember, crucifixion was meant to be public, shameful, and torturous. That was the whole purpose. And the Romans were experts at killing people in certain ways. And crucifixion was one of the most gruesome ways you could die because of that public shaming aspect. These people are still alive. They're hanging there until literally they're lungs fill with fluid and they suffocate that's essentially the method of death at this point jesus is hanging there between two other people and john is bringing this story to light that they went to Pilate and said we want to break their legs because their legs were the way they stayed alive and that was how this was designed that they could push up with their legs and draw breath and then go back to hanging where their diaphragm was essentially neutralized from expanding their lungs and contracting and breathing properly. This is why they would suffocate eventually when they tired out. These people had not tired out yet. And so if we break their legs, they can't breathe. They will die much quicker. So that's why they go to Pilate. Hey, we've got a holy day coming up. We'd like to get rid of this as quick as possible. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. This would have been evidence that he was dead because of the, the fluid that, that came out of there. That's why John points it out. And he who has seen his, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. John's pointing it out because we have more prophecy to deal with. Now, Matthew points out a lot of ancient writing and Jewish law and tradition to give credence to Jesus' claim. He does so to show the, uh, the Jewish audience that he's writing to the fulfillment. John is showing a mixed audience the fulfillment and of the promise by pointing out these prophecies as well. And he's saying, he's, he's pointing out two things. Number one, that he, not a bone was broken. And another scripture says, verse 37, they shall look on him whom they pierced. So these two things happen. And it further fulfills the prophecy and it further fulfills this idea that John's trying to, to get us to understand that this was the son of God. This is the son of God. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, 
asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. This is important because we're, now we're dealing with chain of custody here uh, of, of a body. And Joseph of Arimathea cared for Jesus, was a disciple of his, was a believer, and sought to take possession. And Joseph of Arimathea was probably a, a prominent person and probably a wealthy person, and he used that prominence and wealth as even a secret disciple to go to Pilate and say, I'd like to take him. I'd like to be responsible for the body. And this is good for, for the followers of Christ because now someone who cares about him is going to care for the preparation and burial of their Savior, the one that they, they followed, their teacher. Um, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, Remember Nicodemus? Remember we read about him earlier, the one that came at night and, and, and wanted to talk to Jesus? Also came, bringing a mixture of mirth, myrrh excuse me, and aloes and hundreds of pound, uh, about 100 pounds of weight. So the typical preparation for the body, and this was done to preserve, to uh, lessen the products of decomposition. Okay? Uh, this was their tradition for preparing a body and honoring a body. Uh, and so they did that. So when they took the, so they, verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen, linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. By the way, these tombs would have been found in the sides of uh, mountains or hills or in little caves, and they would prepare them. Multiple people could be buried in a tomb, but no one was in there yet. This is a brand new one. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Hey, we got a new tomb. It's close enough. We got a lot going on with the Sabbath. They laid him there. And that's where we leave Jesus for now, in the tomb. On, I wish I could give so much more time to this, uh, to the, the crucifixion. This is, this is why we're here, partially. If this is where the story of Jesus ends, it's a remarkable teacher who gave his life to defeat sin for a time. But Paul indicates to us that this death in and of itself would have only provided a temporary, uh, much like the sacrifices of the, of the animals of the Old Testament. But it's the fact that something else is going to happen that means we have a redemption, a true sanctification, an ongoing justification. And we're going to talk about that next time. Hope you'll join us then.